Welcome to the Cyclical Podcast. Cyclical Inc. is a community of church starters, discerners, coaches, and leaders who believe in God's love inspiring faithful innovation through the church. On this podcast, we'll have dialogues with practitioners to gain insight, inspiration, and best practices for starting and leading churches in a post-industrial context. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Cyclical Podcast. I'm Nick Warnes. And I'm Karen Rohr. Today's guest is Dr. Liz Lynn. For those of you that don't know her, Karen, would you please introduce her for us? Yes, I'd love to. Liz Lynn, she, her, is the director and co-founder of Progressive Asian American Christians and a senior fellow at Newbegin House of Studies in San Francisco. She's also a writer and educator on the topics of race and culture. She has a PhD in clinical psychology, as well as master's degrees in theology and psychology from Fuller Theological Seminary. She lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan with her spouse and children. All right. So, Karen, so we just finished this interview with her. And after some reflection, uh, what's grabbing your attention here from our conversation with Liz? I'm thinking about how um, innovation was made possible by community and how she was able to navigate uh, building community support to create particularly progressive Asian American Christians. She has a fiscal sponsor um, that helps them manage finances. You know, she, she built up this community from the ground up, but it started in a conversation with a friend. Um, And I think that's a a powerful picture of community uh, supporting innovation. Hmm. How about you? Mm, I mean, so many things about Liz uh, that I admire and uh, what's standing out to me from this conversation, I think especially for our listeners, is uh, seeing this as a conversation for an unexpected innovator. Um, I've known Liz for a long time and she never really identified as a, as a starter or entrepreneur or innovator. Uh, but as I've got to see her story roll out the last, whatever, 15 years now, uh, it seems that she's done nothing but start and create and innovate in so many spheres of life. So yeah, for, for this podcast, I think is, is a great one for listeners who are uh, discerning whether or not they want to dip their toes into the difficult and mysterious work of innovation. So to our listeners, thank you again for joining us in this episode. It's a real gift that you are to us. I hope this conversation is meaningful. And here is our dialogue with adaptive leader and faithful innovator, Dr. Liz Lynn. We're excited to chat with you today. Do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Thanks for having me. My name is Liz Lynn. I use she, her pronouns. I am a writer, adjunct professor, and nonprofit director, and I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan with my two kids and spouse. Liz, thanks for joining us. Good to see you. It's good to see you, Nick. Thanks for having me. So you moved from California to Ann Arbor. We'd love to just touch on the transition, how that's gone thus far. It's been really good. Um, I never planned to leave California. I thought I had made it to the promised land, (laughs) you know, met the man of my dreams, had two gorgeous kids. But as soon as that first kid came out, I was like, oh man, I now understand why people 
leave their exciting coastal cities for their boring Midwestern hometowns because those family relationships make a huge difference, both in terms of like, I mean, they're very deeply meaningful and also the help makes a huge difference and the cost of living makes a huge difference. So uh, we departed for more affordable pastures and it's met all of our needs. Like we love living here. We have a great community. Uh, we live just the right distance from my parents where we can see them regularly, but like yes. not too much. Right. Um, and yeah, like, you know, we were able to buy a home. It's been, it's been everything we wanted it to be. Good. I'm so glad you made that transition and congrats and all those things. Thank and you. also it should be noted, you're probably really close to Michigan's football stadium, which I know you're a huge U of M fan. Yes, indeed. I am very close to Michigan Stadium. I just was drinking coffee looking at it this morning. Um, so yeah, it is weird being back. Um, I went to college here, so it's like I, I'm, I've returned to Mecca in a weird way. <laughs> right. um, but it is nice <laughs> to be surrounded by like-minded people in that way. I bet. I bet. Well, I mean, something that I've admired about you for a long time now, Liz, is uh, your ability to to start things uh, without maybe uh, an initial posture that you might have thought that you'd have had around starting things, but you can't seem to help but start things along the way. So I would just love to hear for our listeners, like, what is it about starting things that um, that you didn't think that you were uh, going to be about, but then all of a sudden you were about starting things. So how did that transition go in your life? That's such a good question. Um, I think you were actually one of the first people in my life who told me that I was, and I was like, I do not know what you're talking about. Um, for those who don't know, um, I, I attended the church that Nick founded. This was probably back in 2009. Yeah, I think so. so. We're talking over a decade ago. I was in my late twenties and I thought I knew everything about myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I had never started anything before. And when I thought about starting things, I thought about entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had no interest in that. I had no interest in starting a small business. Um, what was it about so, entrepreneurship that kind of turned you off from it? It's risky as hell. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. uh, it's very risky. There's tons of moving parts. There's so much uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And I am the child of immigrants. Um, and my parents are professors specifically. So they came to this country for the sake of higher education so that their kids could have a stable and secure life. Mm. And my whole childhood was oriented in that direction. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you know, I became an excellent rule follower and right. I became really good at taking well-worn established paths, right? Like right. Um, really safe paths to financial security. So my parents encouraged me towards medicine. I didn't quite do that, but I landed like pretty close in clinical <laughs> psychology, like mm-hmm. People are always going to have mental health problems. So that's like a guaranteed income for the rest of my life. Mm. Um, so the, and the life of a, a small business person is just like, you're constantly making bets and not knowing if they're going to pay off. Mm-hmm. So I felt like that was just very much at odds with my whole worldview, frankly, mm-hmm. which was very much about like choosing the secure guaranteed path. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I came to church. I, I, I joined, I guess, wait, let me pause for a second before I commit to that sentence. 
Um, and that was the only model that I had, I think, for starting things mm-hmm. because church planting was also a fairly new phenomenon at the time. I mean, maybe that's, I mean, I guess churches have been started forever, but church, church planting. About I About 2000 like, years. Approximately. Yeah, <laughs> give or take. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was very new to the idea of starting anything else. And mm-hmm. NVC, the church that you started was the first time I'd ever been a part of starting anything, any kind of organization from the beginning. Um, and then you go and so you finish your PhD, right? Mm-hmm. And then you end up literally taking a left turn. <laughs> yes. you've, you've walked this path of security uh-huh. and you finish your PhD and you're like, nah, I'm not going to PhD this in some, <laughs> some sort of ways. Like, t- tell us about that, like that move you made toward, I mean, toward risk, right? Yeah, I guess that's true. I, um, I made the very unfortunate realization in graduate school that I did not like being a therapist, um, which is a really rough realization to make when you're in a six year PhD program. Um, but I felt committed to finishing it. And, uh, when I was done, I was like, I would like to find a way to parlay the skills that I have developed in a different, apply it in a different way. So maybe working in student services at a university, um, I ended up teaching adjunct at my alma mater. I ended up doing high school ministry, which was not something I had anticipated. Um, But the helpful thing is that a degree in clinical psychology has many transferable skills, unlike perhaps a degree in architecture. Uh, But, you know, things like empathizing and listening well and understanding human behavior, like those are assets in any arena, really. So I felt really grateful to have um, marketable skills, at least. (laughs) Um, coming out of that, but you're right. That was kind of, that was the first big step out of, um, something safe and secure. And that was, I I was already part of NVC at that point. So I guess I was starting to make my first steps into less charted territory. So then you make this move, uh, you, you don't follow the path that was, um, I think, set up before you, mm-hmm. uh, you, you make a turn and, uh, and then you start what has become, um, a really helpful network group church. I mean, what is it? What is PAC? <laughs> Can you let our, let our listeners know what PAC is yeah. and what the world brought that about in your life? Sure. So, um, in 2016, I had a conversation with a friend where I was finally able to articulate something that I'd been struggling with for the last 10 years. And that was that if you identify as an Asian American Christian, which I do, and you also identify as progressive theologically, socially, politically, which I also do, it can be really hard to find a faith community because you can join an Asian American church, which will match your racial and cultural experiences, but will be theologically conservative as the overwhelming majority of Asian American churches are or you can join a church that matches your theology and values, but where you're like one of the only Asian people in the room, since progressive churches tend to be very, very white. And in both of those places, you can get some of your needs met, but in both cases, you have to turn a pretty big part of your identity. You have to turn the volume on a pretty big part of your identity down. And, um, that finally helped me understand why church had been so hard for me for the last 10 years. 
And as a writer, I knew I had to write about it. And while I was writing about it, I met a pastor in San Francisco named Lydia, also a progressive Asian American Christian. And I was telling her about this revelation that I had and this piece I was writing. And she was like, oh, that's so funny. I just started this Facebook group last week called Progressive Asian American Christians. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's bananas. Um, so I wrote the piece and then at the end, I put a link to her Facebook group, just thinking that if anybody read it and resonated with it, they could join that Facebook group. And I don't know, maybe see a bunch of profile pictures of other progressive Asian American Christians and know that they weren't alone. Um, so the piece went up and then within the first day, 300 people had joined the Facebook group. And then within a week, a thousand had joined and then Huffington Post picked up the piece and then more people started rolling in. And so all of these people started showing up. And what really took me by surprise was that they immediately wanted to start connecting. They wanted us to start having conversations. They wanted to start meeting in person. They were like, when can we have a conference? When can we start making our own stuff? And they just brought with them so much energy and so many ideas that all of a sudden Lydia and I found ourselves like at like leading a thing, which was totally not the plan. We were brand new friends. I had just written something for my own sake to help me process something. Um, and we kind of accidentally found ourselves at the helm of this thing, right? So we like very quickly had to like define our relationship and all of that. But thankfully, like we were both pretty committed to seeing what happened and things just started happening very quickly. Like people started leading local meetups. We've now had meetups in like 23 cities around the country and the world. Um, somebody offered to produce a podcast for us. So we started that within the first few months. Um, we put together a conference like six months in. We started a 10 month intentional online learning community called the PAC Fellowship like seven months in. You know, and since then, all of this like momentum and energy has spawned all of these new ideas and new things like a magazine and um, people have written Advent and Lent devotionals and responses to other things that have happened in the world of American Christianity and stuff like that. And what's been incredible to see is that so much of this energy is grassroots, like all Lydia and I had to do was get everybody in the same space. Mm -hmm. And then people took off. Mm -hmm. Like that's really what we needed. Like all we needed to light the fuse was to get everybody in the same place. Well, I mean, yes, I, I hear what you're saying. Also we're working at the intersection uh, this season of adaptive leadership and faithful innovation. Mm -hmm. And you make this sound like it was just so easy. <laughs> And you make this sound like you didn't do anything, but Liz, come on, you were, you were, you were doing some things behind the scenes, right? What, what were some of the challenges that you faced early on and, and how did you change early on as you were innovating all these connections for people? Oh, man, that's a really good question. So I think like one of the first challenges was that like Lydia and I had like just met. And so I, I knew that I liked her but we didn't know anything about how we worked or our like communication styles. So I feel like learning how to work together with like a brand new person was like a huge, like learning experience. Like right. it's like, it's like an arranged marriage in some ways, you know what I mean? Um, right. So that was, that was like a really big learning experience. And then 
just the intricacies of internet community were really foreign to me. I had never been in a Facebook group before. Like I didn't know that that was such a big thing, but it's a huge thing. (laughs) And just realizing that like, you know, I think Lydia and I kind of naively thought at the beginning that the group would just moderate itself. And if anybody said something that was out of line, that the group would just take care of it. And that happened. I mean, people clapped back to toxic things, but what we realized the hard way was that um, people needed to hear from leadership about what was and wasn't okay to say in the space. So that was just like, I don't know, how to cultivate community on the internet where people don't know each other in real life and don't necessarily have investments in each other. I think that was a real, that was a real challenge. Did people just recognize you and Lydia right away as the leaders of PAC and therefore give you some sort of mantle for leadership or did you diversify that early on or how did that go? I mean, I think people recognized us because like we were like facilitating conversations in the space. Um, And in the first few months, a few people offered to help us moderate. I think that was like a gentle, like you need help. And they were totally right. Cause we were very like naive about the realities of internet community. Um, And the folks who joined us are still, you know, helping to lead and direct the organization now. Um, And then as different initiatives have come up throughout the organization, you know, new leaders have um, taken, like taken charge and, you know, we've, recruited a few people to lead different things. So that's also been interesting because again, this is all internet community. So we don't always fully know the people. We don't have a sense for people in the same way that we would if we were all in the same place. Um, And I think, I think the biggest challenge at the beginning was the fact that the word progressive is relative. And so what is progressive for one person um, might be very, very, very not progressive for another. And so just wrestling with that question of like, how do we be a space that is like safe for progressives, but also where people who are not as far along in the journey can like learn. Um, And I think we thought that we could do both. We could like value both equally, but we realized over time that we actually had to prioritize safety over like uh, learning. Um, especially when it came to our queer members, we have a large, large, large queer contingent and we can't, we couldn't have like debates over whether or not homosexuality was okay because it's violent to our queer members. And there's plenty of spaces where people can have those conversations and plenty of resources for them. So we had to make some of those calls early to protect the people in the group. I'm interested as well in how the finances rolled out on this thing. Mm. So, you know, so many people who uh, innovate spend a lot of time prior to the thing coming to life or in the early stages of life, uh, gathering finances to support the thing. But yours feels just like an unexpected piece of bread fell from the sky <laughs> landed with you and Lydia. And so how, how did you, how did you turn the finances early on and how has that changed over time? Yeah, that's a really good question. And probably one of the reasons why I never wanted to innovate before, like the thought of like dealing with money and like where I was going to get it. Like it just, oh my God, even now, very stressful. So, so many innovators just love to dwell in the sexiness of the ideas, but all of a sudden you got to put some, you know, infrastructure to the thing, which is just hard work. It's totally. It's toil. Sexy, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, um, we were lucky in that the church where Lydia and I had met, where Lydia was pastoring, 
Um, they had, they have a theological education arm where I am a senior fellow and the theological education arm looked at PAC and was like, we can see value in what you do in alignment with our own mission in terms of like helping people who are otherwise disconnected from Christian community um, engage in some way. And so they became our fiscal sponsor. And so we are like a line item in their budget and we get to run, we run all of our finances through them. And we feel it's like an, it's like an absurdly incredible situation because they take none of our money, but do like provide so much help and essential infrastructure around finances for us. Um, and it's, it's kind of a dream scenario. So, um, I have to say we got super lucky and a lot of our initiatives, um, you know, like things like putting on a conference, like we charge for tickets and this online learning community, we charge tuition. So we've had like one or two incredible donors and we have incredible, you know, a small contingent of like monthly donors who are amazing and keep us afloat. Um, but by and large, like we're still a very like scrappy, small, like we're not dealing with like six figures of income or, you know, you know, like we don't have a ton of money going in and out. Um, that could change at some point, but at this point we have a lovely setup for the financial needs we have right now. I just want to name, um, the beautiful plug you made for organizations being fiscal sponsors of something innovative and new mm -hmm. because what you're doing is so incredible. It's reaching so many people. It's doing so much good in the world. And for like a little bit more spreadsheeting time, a larger organization can make that possible in the world. And it's just yes. so much easier for a larger organization to do that for a smaller one. Um, and listening to you tell your story, it, it just, it makes me want to say to all of our listeners, think about fiscal sponsorship on mm -hmm. either side. If you're mm -hmm. innovating, look for somebody who's invested in what you're doing. And if you're interested in supporting innovation, but that's not who you happen to be, Think about being a fiscal sponsor because it's such a gift. For yeah, people yeah. that are with you know larger organizations and they do want to dip their toes into innovation, it's such an effective way uh, to jump into something that has a much higher likelihood of success than if a behemoth of an institution is just going to start trying to innovate on their own. So you mm -hmm. have to adopt. But then it feels like those institutions too, they need to be nimble and adaptive enough on themselves to be able to recognize like, how long did it take? It's the Newbigin house, right, Liz? Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. so how long did it take the Newbigin house to know what you all were doing and then to immediately begin to finance it? I mean, it feels like it was a short amount of time. It was very short. Yeah. I mean, and it helped that Lydia and I had relationships with them and it was all Peter Choi got a name Peter Choi because he immediately was like, this is valuable. Without him, we could not have pulled off things like a conference within the first six months or this intentional online learning community either. Um, and I, I really appreciate the plug that you both are making because I think it's so important um, for larger organizations that have some amount of infrastructure to do exactly what you're saying. And I think so many, especially progressive faith communities don't have that kind of infrastructure behind them. Um, I feel like there's a lot of conservative Christian organizations and money to be had, but when it comes to progressives, it's a lot harder. Like there's pretty much the mainline denominations, but if you don't fit into their specific criteria or ecclesiology, 
then it's really tough to plug into one of those spaces. And also they have varying levels of receptiveness to things like church innovation. Um, so yeah, I, I, anybody out there who is interested in fostering innovation, like the idea of just providing this kind of infrastructure and support for small scrappy organizers. Like, I think that's a wonderful idea. Well, I'm especially thinking about your experience as liminal as a progressive Asian American Christian Mm -hmm. and how many particularly church start stories I've heard that were like, yeah, well, we were part of this network and our funding would have been canceled if we came out in support of the things we actually believe. And so we were stuck. Yeah. And so often in church organizations, we have exactly that circumstance, which is like, if we want to exist, we have to do something that we don't believe in. We have to be someone that we're not, Mm -hmm. which undermines all of our credibility, which undermines all of our integrity, Mm -hmm. doing exactly what we want to do. And so I I think that's, that's just so important. And I'm really grateful for you kind of blazing that trail and saying, this is, this is who we are. Um, And I'm interested in how your search for your own kind of like to bring your own experience to articulation through being a writer, you built the infrastructure to kind of make that happen in the world. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Liz, also the way that you diversified your income streams right away stands out to me. Mm. It's not like I, 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 so many faithful innovators, it feels like just want to build their thing on the backs of generous donors. Mm. And, you know, that can be a fine way to do it um, in the right situations. Um, but it feels like right away you intuited, uh, diversifying your income stream. So the different experiences you created, like the conference, uh, the different educational pieces you created, like the, was it a certificate or what, what did you call it? The PAC fellowship program. It's like, a, yeah, yeah. So you, you did that. And then you also included the generosity of donors and that baseline of, uh, of, of the, of the new fellowship or the new house. Yeah. So was that just intuitive to you to diversify that way? Or did that like, what, what kind of adaptive leadership did that require to get to that point? Oh, Nick, you give me and Lydia altogether too much credit. It was not an intentional play to diversify. It was more like we want to offer, like we want to do this thing. And the only way we're going to be able to fund it is if people buy tickets, you know? So, which right. is thankfully like people are used to buying conference registrations and paying tuition for classes. So, um, yeah, it was more just like we wanted to offer a service and we, the only way that we had to fund it at the time was for, for, yeah, if people paid for it and only later were we like, oh yeah, we, I think we're also going to need donors. And that was primarily because we wanted to be able to make these programs accessible to as many people as possible. And that requires scholarship funds. Right. So, Um, Our appeal to donors was and still is primarily like we want to make this accessible to as many people as possible, especially because so many progressive Asian American Christians are young. They're in college, um, you know, or they're Gen Zers or millennials who have like inconsistent income. And so in order to make it accessible for them, like, you know, could you could you could you give us a couple bucks? And people have responded to that. Well, well done. I, I, I mean, this is so intuitive to you and I love your humility around it. So thank you for that. Um, I'll also appreciate your humility around your writing. I'm just wondering in your prolific writing, what have you learned as someone who creates or innovates uh, from your writing practices and how might that help people understand how to create in their context, uh, especially for our listeners? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, 
I, I see writing primarily for as something I do for myself to make sense of uh, the things that I'm thinking about or um, puzzling through. And what I have found in putting my writing on the internet is that they a lot of times relate to other people as well. And um, again, this was not intentional at all because I did not intend in any way to start things. But what I have learned is that um, writing can be a platform through which you can collect people into a community, if that makes sense. Because uh, I feel like that's kind of what happened. And even now people still find pack through this, this thing that I wrote. Um, so yeah, I guess like the word that I would give is that like, if you have things that you're thinking about and wrestling with, like odds are good that at least a few other people are doing that as well. And if you have a way to like bring them into conversation, um, whether that's through social media or a Facebook group or what have you, like you could just find yourself with the beginning of something. So now years into starting various things, uh, would you consider yourself a starter, an innovator, an entrepreneur? <laughs> like, would you identify in such a way? I mean, I do, which I never thought I would, but I think, I think for me, part of it has been the experience of doing this with pack, obviously, but it's also, um, realizing that because of my identity as an Asian American woman, um, I keep finding myself in places, um, that are not meant for me and real, like seeing the need for more places for people like me. So for example, I moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan, a predominantly white town, and there is a Facebook group for moms that is predominantly white. And um, it's not a fantastic place for people of color. There's a lot of white fragility. There's a lot of white tears and a lot of microaggressions. And um, I was like, I think, I think we need something for, uh, I think we need an analog for parents of color. So I, you know, just put up a post in that, in that big Ann Arbor mom group gathered some people and we started our own thing. And so of now we have, <laughs> now we have, because I think, I think, um, in the way that 6 million people in this group too. No, 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 hardly. <laughs> I think that like what I have realized is, you know how, like in the way that entrepreneurs like see the hole in the market and they're like, I can fill this in some way. I think I have seen, I see the holes maybe in community. And I think that I am because of who I am as a person, because of my identity, I see them. And I think I have enough organizing skills to be able to make them happen. So, um, yeah. So I feel, feel like for me, innovation is much more around community than it is around, I don't know, product, which is what I thought that an innovator did. And now, I mean, for the biggest hole, I think in Ann Arbor is that when it comes to church, um, I will only go to a church that's queer affirming and has a sizable number of people of color, which means that there needs to be people of color in leadership and the overlap and that Venn diagram is zero in this town. Wow. And so I'm like this, and it is in a lot of towns, to be honest, like even in San Francisco, that was a tough Venn, di Venn diagram to, to fill. But, um, I think all the time about what it would look like to have a church community, that is led by people of color, queer affirming. Um, and like, just, I don't know, just subverts all of the 
white supremacist, toxically masculine structures that characterize most churches, evangelical and mainline. Um, and like that conversation that like the thought of that is really exciting to me, but like, I, I mean, I planted a church with you, Nick, it is so much work. Mm-hmm. It is so, so, so much work. So like I, I, and I have two very young children and like a thousand other things in this pandemic life. So um, that is something, a hole in the community that I see so clearly, but I, I don't quite yet have the bandwidth to figure out how to address that. Karen, any wisdom for Liz here? I mean, I don't know that I have any wisdom. I'm, I'm thinking about the role because that's a prophetic role, right? The person who sees the whole is mm-hmm. a prophetic role in a community and every community needs that kind of profit. And so I'm thinking like, how do we get you in a place where you are looking around at the ecosystem of church or benefit work or good work in any way and, and being able to say and be heard, this is what I see. This is what is needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking too of like our students who graduate and are desperate to go serve somewhere in a progressive space, mm-hmm. um, but there's nothing there for them to go to. And is it enough to connect them with someone like you who has the wisdom, the how to, you know, as a mentor sort of figure and say, you know, go to Grand Rapids. There's a space for this. There's, there's somebody who has the wisdom. Um, but also, I mean, I heard you introduce yourself. You're doing like five really important and compelling things already. Um, so how do you, yeah, I, I don't know. It just, it strikes me that that is very necessary as a part of the ecosystem. Someone who sees the whole. Hmm. That's very generous of you, Karen. Um, I appreciate that. And I feel like, I feel like the lesson from PAC maybe is that like, I feel like my, also, my, my previous understanding of innovation was that like you had to have a plan and you had to know what you were doing. And I feel like with PAC, what I learned is that you actually don't, you can just bring the people together and then see what ideas percolate and take, take off. And so like, maybe, maybe that is what my next step should be is just to like gather people who are interested in such a thing. Um, but I think my fear is that like, nobody will, that I will still end up doing all of the work. You know what I mean? So I, uh, and I feel like I need to wait until I am ready to potentially step in to meet that need. You know what I mean? If, if that happens, but, um, but no, I mean, that would be the dream, right? It, Karen, if, if, uh, the student that you described (laughs) wanted to do, wanted to do something. Um, and yeah, like, you know, I'd be, I'd happily have some conversations with them if they would be willing to do the legwork. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will be on the lookout for the the right kind of graduate for such a thing, but I I resonate with what you're saying. It's like, um, the fear of crowd surfing, like you're going to jump off the stage and the whole crowd is just going to divide and you're going to land face first on the ground because no one up the ball. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, I'm thinking about something that our friend Chris Scott said, like, I, I, I'm going to botch this Nick, but about how like leadership is a lot about your capacity to withstand disappointment. Yes. And, um, I, I think that's, a which I also think is, is true. Right. So part of me is like, how do I, I would like to facilitate some conversations, but I, I don't think I should have the expectation that somebody else is going to like be like, I will do the labor. Right. So, um, yeah. Like how do you position yourself in a way that you like want to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You want to like distribute the labor as much as possible, but you also have to be ready to take it on if nobody else helps out. Like, yeah. Well, that's such a scary space to be in. 
I, I feel that in my bones from my church planting days. <laughs> yeah. Well, Liz, maybe one more question here. Um, there's many of our listeners who are thinking about dipping their toes in innovation. They're thinking about thinking about themselves as mm. a, a starter, mm. as an entrepreneur. Uh, what might you say uh, to those folks? Um, I think the biggest thing that I've learned from all of this is that like most people like want to do something. They just need some direction and they need to be, I don't want to say told what to do, but they just need some like leadership or they need to be like gathered in some way. And I feel like that is, I don't know, 60 to 70% of the work is just like facilitating the space for people to gather. Um, and so I would, and, and most people, um, for whatever reason, whether it's busyness or a fear of failure or rejection, like don't want to be the person who gets that ball rolling. And so if you feel like you have it in you to get the ball rolling, like you should do it. I think that people want to be a part of something and they want to help and they want to participate. They just need someone to like guide the process. Right. So, uh, and you don't need to know, you don't need to have like some grand overarching plan. Um, because like once, once you've gathered the people like cool and exciting things can happen and you can see what happens there. Mm -hmm. What a lovely place to land. Uh, Liz, if our listeners would like to learn more about your work or get in contact with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? Um, let's see. I'm on Instagram at Liz Linsta. I'm on Twitter at Curious Liz. Uh, my website is my name is Elizabeth.com. Um, Nick, can I ask you a question? Oh boy. You can let's cut this it. if you want. I'm just curious. Like mm -hmm. what was it in 2009 that made you think that I was a starter given that I had no track record of starting anything? Mm -hmm. Um, Full disclosure, uh, I'm biased toward everyone being a starter. So there's that. <laughs> then to narrow it in, uh, I think that starting capacities can be uh, can be learned. Mm, Competencies around innovation can be learned. Mm. And anyone who's such a high level leader and thinker like you uh, could do pretty much whatever you want to do, certainly starting something. So, you know, that alongside some Holy Spirit nudges, I suppose, <laughs> would probably be the, the way that I would respond to that. That's super interesting. I've always wondered that, so thank you. Thank you for that. You're welcome. And uh, to our listeners, uh, thank you for joining us. And to Liz, thank you again for being with us. It's a privilege. Thank you so much for the time. My name is Nick Warnes, and I'm with the co-host. Karen Rohr. And we'll see you at the next episode. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Cyclical Podcast, a resource of Cyclical Incorporated. You can join us on mission by going to cyclicalchurches.com and signing up to pray with us daily, Luke 10-2, for God to send out workers into the harvest. This episode was produced by Brianna Kinsman and me, Brendan McClenahan. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with a friend. Catch you next time.